Greetings. You have entered Lorenlu's cave. Deep in the ground, the universal unconscious lies waiting to expose its secrets. The cave has, from the inception of humankind, enticed, mesmerized. It has been protective shelter, spiritual temple, keeper of sacred images, rituals, and lastly, burial chamber. Last Vision Quest episode finds Lorraine at her site in the woods on the last night of her ritual. She experiences another vision that completes her transition to a more expanded consciousness. On the next day, she re-enters a world she hardly recognizes. As I've stated previously, at a point in my life after the divorce, and my daughter's making her own way, I sold my home and left that world behind. I decided to go on a vision quest as preparation for the path I was to take. In such a ritual, a person separates herself from the everyday life, fasts and purifies herself, seeking a spiritual connection, and hopefully a vision that will guide her on her path. It's a powerful experience that attracts psychic forces to oneself. You let go of your tenacious grip on life and open yourself up to this force. Afterward, what you have learned will take time to unfold. Your perception of life and your role in it completely changes. At night, the visions are of women. She sees a sorceress in a long white gown. The one wears a crown that springs off her head and is structured in a triangle, richly decorated and with lights all around it. Then come a series of pictures of one woman. It's a friend back home, a woman who's lost her power in the world. She appears soft, feminine, happy, Not this woman's way for many years now. She is hardened and emulates men's ways in the cities. In the first scene, she wears a wedding gown but hides her face. When she does show it, there are small tree fungi all over it and also on her gown. She wears another wedding gown in the next scene. It has a bluish tinge, and the crown of her veil is encrusted with large bluish pearls. She is walking at the edge of a cornfield. The last scene depicts the bride sitting at her vanity, radiant. She arranges her face and hair. There follows a series of pictures of women, all beautiful. One is a painting of a woman holding a yellow flower, a living, moving painting with red, red lips. The flower is presented. It is live. The sorceress with triangular headpiece brings unity and light 
warm light to her. She shows her the way to become whole through the example of her friend, who is transformed and given a new identity by becoming part of the woods, the cultivated soil, through solitude and refinement of the soul. And she understands the beauty of woman ultimately is the flower she presents to us, not the way she appears. This is the morning. She crawls out of her tent, makes her way to the blackberries across the path that she's been eyeing for the past four days. Their tartness grabs at her throat and she retches. She drinks some water and sits in the sun for a bit and rests. Then she starts packing for her trip down, making everything as compact as possible. The plastic water jug is emptied and she latches it to her pack. Bedroll is tied so she can carry it like a suitcase. Only the tent is cumbersome. Although it folds up compactly and slips in a pouch, the pouch has no handle. She gathers the pine bows she had cut and uses them to repair part of the path that is gutted and collects water. Slowly and rhythmically she makes her way down, never stopping once all the way. She can see the clearing ahead. She starts to cry because she is glad, no confounding human nature, she is sad to leave the woods. Felinus waits faithfully. Her breakfast consists of herb tea with honey and she has an orange to eat. Throughout food preparation, she she scurries back and forth through the garden and fills her cooler with vegetables, as Mr. Shea has advised. The sun overwhelms her, and she sits in the car to rest. She pulls out a clean, crisp sheet of paper and writes a poem to Mr. Shea. She includes a note and picks some goldenrod and black-eyed Susan that she sticks in the scarecrow's hat. Back on the road, tooting wildly as she passes Mr. Shea's house, she drives by the Indian reservation and is overwhelmed with sadness. They have now become the children of government, they, have, they live in identical brick houses, all in a row, all facing the highway. She turns the radio on, wants to get acclimated by degrees, but finds she cannot listen to hard news. A plane crash has occurred in California, killing 50 people, and over in South Africa, 30 blacks have been murdered for refusing to leave homes after being given eviction notices. This information is given in a rhythmic, sing-songy way. No feelings. Hard. Click, she shuts the thing off. Around five o'clock, she decides to stop at a store and get some supplies, then find a place to bed down for the night. Oh, God, what a shock she encounters when she steps into the store. She's lost her way of being in the world. 
Stimuli bombards her from all sides. Words, letters, signs, exhortations. She feels like an African bushwoman suddenly transplanted to the Grand Central Terminal. Against the black wall is an icebox with butter. She gets two sticks and makes her way to the counter. She wants to protect herself from all the stimuli. Furtively, she looks at the counter girl as she slowly counts out her nickels and dimes, and then she runs out. Once outdoors, she makes a quick assessment of her physical appearance. Wild hair, which she sticks under a straw hat to no avail. Her body looks emaciated. A normally slender woman, this weight loss makes her look anorexic. She can finally say without equivocation that she has a flat abdomen and her inner thighs so long a source of concern at the gym. The skin just hangs from them now. What's more, she hasn't bathed in five days. She stops at another store, makes her way to the icebox. There's that wine cooler I like. As she reaches in to get it, a young man comes over and says, No, ma'am, you can't take that. What have I done? She jumps back. Seems they don't sell wine on Sunday in this town. She compl- she's completely unnerved and mutters something about getting ice. Yes, he tells her you can get ice. She quickly makes her way out of there, too, eventually stopping at two other stores, each time gaining more composure. Her walk becomes slower, sexier. People's looks are less strange when they see her. She keeps driving and driving, but can't seem to find a place to bed down for the night. Finally, around 7 p.m., in desperation, she makes her way to a boat access and launching area in Sears Port, a big lot tarred with mark lines for parking cars, big overhead lights, potted flowers, and a picnic area with corrugated metal tables, grills, and a tiny lawn. But the view is stupendous, ocean all around, about 25 boats moored in the water, some with sailing rig, and a long, large wharf where people are coming back from boat trips. There's much activity in the lot, cars pulling in and out. Some just come for the view. Others are going home with their catch. Two women and a young boy in a beat-up car pull up next to hers. Mama and her girlfriend, sitting to her right with the window open, are discussing love. The kid's got an an enormous ice cream cone in one hand and a large drink in the other. She watches him play for a while. He finishes his ice cream, then throws rocks at the seagulls. She has to fight an urge to push him over the rock edge. He skirts and sent him hurtling into the ocean. Morning sun streams down on her. People are bustling through the parking lot. She sits up. Again, the outstanding view. She notices people are less frantic than the ones she saw in the stores yesterday. About 15 of them are fishing off the sides. She makes her way to the corrugated metal tables and starts coffee. 
An old woman comes to greet her and offers chit-chat. She acknowledges her and replies briefly, trying to protect herself to control incoming messages. Something happened to her in the woods. I don't want to lose it. I don't want to go back to being crazy in the world again. She sits with her coffee and begins to write. The old woman and her husband take the table next to hers. They are having lobster. He unfolds a lawn chair facing the sea and cracks open a book. A pampered man, handsome, lean, full white beard. His wife faces corrugated metal and begins her attack on the lobsters. She works steadily and quietly, save for an an occasional query about her husband's well-being. She speaks with an accent too faint to distinguish. The morning passes like so. The man removes his T-shirt, nice, well-proportioned chest. He sees her watching and struts a bit. She's amazed at the amount of meat the old woman has managed to extract from the lobsters. Everything's been pulverized, but she didn't save the tamale, an out-of-stater. It's time to head home. She charts her route and heads inland. The closer she gets, the more anxious she becomes, not wanting this time to end and bracing herself for the ride into town. She would like to go immediately to the cabin, but doubts that it is ready yet. She decides to go to the silver gym, take a shower, and afterwards get supper, hoping staff is not present so she won't have to chit-chat. Again, the violent shock as she enters, hard black iron strewn in long rows on the floor, heavy black machines everywhere and the whole of it set off by mirrors all around, reflecting it twice and three times over. She passes a bodybuilder and his girlfriend on her way to the locker rooms. Both give her the once-over and disdain her. Three weeks ago, she was a peacock strutting this floor. She still remembers the combination to her locker, and the door opens to reveal an electric blue bodysuit with stripes, smoke-colored tights, and salmon pink leg warmers hanging there. She packs everything up except the toiletries she will need for her bath. The shower lasts 35 blissful minutes, and afterwards she blow-dries her hair, puts on a dress and heels, examining herself in the mirror. I look good. My face is strong. Chinese dinner at the Jade Fountain. She sees hardship in the faces of people around her, and she remembers a glib comment meant by a visiting celebrity. A depressed meltdown is how he phrased it. Two fortune cookies inform her that her outstanding trait is versatility, and the way of the heart is the most profound way to speak. She heads for the cabin, stopping along the way to pick up a bottle of champagne. What an incredible sight it is when she gets there. A big bouquet of wildflowers with oak leaves sits on the picnic table, several smaller ones in the house. The place has been spruced up and polished. She sits quietly outdoors for about 15 minutes, taking in the white-tipped blue mountains, the lake, the tall pines. 
She lights the outdoor fireplace that's been prepared with newspaper and kindling. Then she becomes frenzied like the lobster woman and brings in the things she had stored in the pump house, hangs all the bedding, area rugs, and pillows to air out, puts all the food supplies on shelves in cabinets. She decides to leave the office furniture and equipment for another day. She's too weak to move the filing cabinet and desk. She proceeds to the car, uncorks the champagne bottle, and pops it against the front door. Then she completely unloads the car by firelight, bringing in the vegetables from Mr. Shea's gardens. She washes them up and cooks the beet greens so as not to lose them. It's four o'clock in the morning. Everything straightened out, and she hops in bed. She begins to cry, deep, heart-wrenching sobs, and she does not stop for a long time. Thanks for listening. You're welcome to visit my website, loveandlou.com, where you can leave feedback in the journal page.